Welcome, everyone, to the fourth episode of Only Murderers in the Writer's Room. I'll be your host once again, Denny Pivach, and today, our array of film-slash-show analysis are all somewhat anniversary-themed. Spoilers to anyone who has yet to see the series Superboy and a majority of the Spider-Man movies. Now, continuing where we left off from my last episode, my idea of how Superboy Season 9 could have gone would be something like this. Taking place a few years after the events of the 8th season's finale, civilians have begun looking down upon the JLE, aka the Justice Legion of Earth. Superman is now entangled in a legal battle regarding his previous encounters with alien life, Batman is being put under some sort of quote-unquote house arrest by the CIA, and Wonder Woman is facing punishment for leaving her home island, Themyscira. However, The Flash has become more invested in finding out why civilians have started to load superheroes all of a sudden. He discovers a supervillain named Kilgore has been creating subliminal messages all over social media, causing the public to act hypnotically crazy towards the JLE. After Flash stops Kilgore, Superman reunites with a past love, who he presumed dead, in London. Unfortunately, it's bad timing since her ex-fiance has flown to America and accumulates a thirst for blood. He has become an all-new kind of monster known only in the papers as Bewerewolf. Bewerewolf has unleashed itself on Capital City. Unfortunately, he has also accumulated skin made of lava and sharpened teeth. This episode particularly would show the return of former werewolf Christina Riley, who was played by Paula Marshall in Season 3, and former vampire slash Christina's ex-fiance, Dr. Byron Shelley, who was played by Kevin Bernhardt in Season 2. The episode after that shows the Flash, Green Lantern, and Hawkgirl deciding to take a vacation. Unfortunately, when they arrive at their destination, supervillain Weather Wizard does too. He's managed to turn the coldest states into the hottest, and vice versa. Meanwhile, Dr. Fate and Martin Man- and Martian Manhunter, sorry, I misspelled Martin, have been looking over events to come in the not-too-distant future. Apparently, an all-new threat awaits the return of an old friend. This threat is more powerful than Darkseid, Mongol, and Starro combined. This supervillain, known only for now as A.M., uses all its power to resurrect a past version of Lex Luthor and sends him off on a journey to retrieve something called the Book of Destiny. If Luthor finds the book, he could make A.M. corporeal. However, when Bruce discovers Luthor's lie, he goes on a solo mission to retrieve him. Meanwhile, Shiara, a.k.a. Hawkgirl, and Jessica, a.k.a. Green Lantern, are trying to figure out where their relationship is going. They get an unexpected answer soon when Jessica loses her powers and Chiara gets kidnapped. Question the rise, like will Bruce break his own code of conduct so Clark doesn't have to break his, and will Jess be enough to save Chiara and their relationship? After that, we're introduced to Alexandria Roberta Dubois Trent, or Lexi, as her quote-unquote friends call her. She's a world-class markswoman specializing in brutality, her hands especially, being anything she wields with them are considered deadly weapons. Trained by her father, the original blood sport seen throughout many DC comics. From the moment she was born, Lexi has been proven to be one hardened criminal. However, she decides to mess with the JLE by committing crimes and framing other supervillains for them. This causes an all-out soup revolution. 
Meanwhile, Aisha Bowen, a.k.a. Fiddler 2.0, and Citizen Abra, a.k.a. Abracadabra 3.0, are family, in a way. Not blood-related, but Abra raised Aisha as if she were his own daughter. Though he's a criminal, he isn't a monster. He discovered Aisha as a baby, sleeping soundly in a cradle left out in an alleyway. As she grew, Abra saw potential and made her a neat tool to use for self-defense called the Frequency Intensifying Dominator, or FID for short. The two eventually bump into Superman and Wonder Woman traveling to Sample, Kentucky, to attend a comic convention happening in Lexington. They chose to stay in Sample so they don't attract too much paparazzi. Unfortunately, the paparazzi find them, and even worse, their cameras aren't filled with film strip. The two heroes get knocked out and find themselves in the presence of one Professor Peterson. Now, the professor has gone mad and seeks revenge on Superman for destroying the anti-hero Bizarro. Peterson wishes to make another Bizarro. And finally, after multiple fillers, this season finally goes back to its storyline-connecting roots, with Lex retrieving the Book of Destiny and Batman deciding to hide it in one of the many vaults built within the Watchtower. However, John D., a.k.a. supervillain Dr. Destiny, sees Batman lock the book away and decides to use it to his own advantage. After a hard day's work of fighting crime, Batman decides to rest. However, he sleeps rather quickly. When he awakes, he sees Gotham in ruins. Buildings collapsing, civilians burning, and the true face of fear looking down upon him. Turns out, Dr. Destiny has taken control of Bruce's mind, and Bruce is officially trapped in his own nightmare. Fortunately, Bruce is able to fight, uh, fight his way out, is able to fight his way out and live another day. Meanwhile, Daniel Gisetso arrives in a capital city, creating chaos however and wherever he goes. When the JLE try to stop him, they lose their powers and become mere mortals. It turns out that this supervillain's other power is causing superheroes to render powerless when near him, meaning only a supervillain could destroy him or someone without a soul. Batman decides to turn to an old friend of his named Jason Blood. Why? Because Blood's alter ego is Etrigan, the demonic warrior. And finally, we have not only reached the season finale, but also the long-awaited battle between two of the most iconic superheroes ever and of all time. When supervillain Poison Ivy returns to Gotham, she hypnotizes Batman into fighting Superman. With his new kryptonite-powered suit, Batman could have the upper hand and possibly kill the Man of Steel. And that wraps up season Superboy Season 9. Any thoughts? Did you like that I added many more comic book famous supervillains, or... Were there too many? Were there also too many returning characters from previous seasons? Any similarly relatable comments, questions, or concerns can be expressed through my Instagram at denny.pivak. That's D-E-N-I, a literal dot, P-I-V-A-C. No spaces, no caps, and certainly no booby traps. Anywho, on to the 10th season premiere of Superboy. It begins with supervillain A.M. using his power to resurrect another version of Lex. Meanwhile, Superman is experiencing some unusually painful headaches and believe it's linked to the multiversal war. He goes to Dr. Fate for answers, only to discover that Dr. Fate and his life's work have been destroyed. When Superman finds out another Luthor is roaming the streets of Capital City, he must face his super-powered arch-nemesis yet again to save everyone. After that fiasco, the JLE finally come face-to-face with the entity that has been causing problems for them for the past year. AM's true name is revealed to be the Anti-Monitor, and much like its counterpart, it wishes to save the world. 
However, its idea of saving the world is starting all over again, therefore having to destroy this one. The JLE tried to stop the Anti-Monitor, but one by one, the Anti-Monitor destroys each and every superhero that it confronts. Eventually, the only heroes left standing are the Flash and Superman. Superman whispers into the Flash's ear before charging at the Anti-Monitor with a super punch. With the Anti-Monitor distracted, the Flash runs away. He runs so fast he breaks the fabric of reality. Running through space and time, the Flash arrives in the late 70s. How does he know that? Because the Flash managed to catch the same bullets that killed Bruce Wayne's parents. This means that there was never a Batman to be brought up, a Superman never, be, never to be directed, and a super team never, ever organized. Barry has created some kind of paradox known only in the comics as Flashpoint. With that being the mid-season finale, the mid-season premiere shows what truly happens after Barry changed Bruce's past. The two must find a way to change it back, because if he doesn't, the JLE ceases to exist, forever. In a cliffhanging ending, Barry discovers that Bruce's parents weren't all that he seemed to, that he imagined to be. They were somewhat corrupt, but that's for a later episode. For now, Barry doesn't wish to change Bruce's future, but he also doesn't wish to leave Superman's either. However, Barry does, and it shows with Bruce's dad creating an alternate particle accelerator, the same machine that gave Barry his powers. When activated, it caused an explosion that sent Superman's pod off course. Baby Kal-El becomes a native island's deity. After changing Bruce's and Clark's past for seemingly the better, Barry tries to change Diana's, aka Wonder Woman's past, too. Even though males aren't allowed on Themyscira, Barry vibrates fast enough to become so to become as thin as air. I was going to say so fast, but merely to become as thin as air. So we can spy on Diana. Eventually, he discovers Diana's past stays the same, but her future doesn't. Also, instead of Jessica receiving the Ring of Volthoom, eventually, which leads her to become the Green Lantern like in the comics, it is actually uh, found by Shiara's murder. Using it, he not only turns himself, but a majority of Earth's population into evil Green Lanterns. Years later, Jessica is all grown up with a family of three. Her loving wife, Diana Prince, a.k.a. Wonder Woman. Her son, Jonathan John Prince Cruz, a.k.a. Wonder Boy. And her daughter, Simone, Simone Prince Cruz, a.k.a. Wonder Girl. What her family doesn't know, Jessica's alter ego is a world-renowned superhero hunter, known only on the streets as the Hellbounder. Fortunately, Barry manages to resurrect Jessica and get her back with Chiara. But their combined forces could be too much for the people of Earth to handle. If Barry doesn't get it right this time, the entire multiverse could be doomed for all eternity. Sooner than later, Barry finally changes his future as the Flash and makes sure the JLE is still around in the future. The cliffhanger ending shows an all-new Anti-Monitor returning to planet Earth with the help of Dr. Destiny. Anti-Monitor and Dr. Destiny work on a plan to eliminate the Justice League, but their time is cut short when the Legion of Doom return and put their own little spin on AM's plan. A filler episode revolves around Mirror Master killing the citizens of Capital City by pulling them into his world and literally shattering whatever piece of goodness they have left. Their deaths pay an homage or parody to a particular one from the 1997 horror cult classic Wishmaster. I shouldn't go into too gorific details, but if one were to go on YouTube and type in Wishmaster Kane Hodder Death Scene, 
you should understand then what I'm envisioning Mirmaster could do. After putting things back to somewhat normal, the JLE still aren't satisfied. If anything, now that they're reunited, they feel more torn apart. So Barry calls up his old friend Jean Jones, aka Martian Manhunter, to share some quintessential memories with fellow teammates. Though this is a clip show, it is a sweet and helpful recap for newcomers. This shows the friendships created and idealisms debated. This cliffhanger ending shows Dr. Destiny accidentally opening a portal to another universe. Who's to come through it but none other than Clark Kent and Lana Lang's children. Lois Lane Kent II is the daughter of Clark and Lois Lane Kent. Clark Lang Fordman is the daughter of Lana Lang and Whitney Fordman. When Lane and Fordman meet up with this universe's Lois and Clark, they must find a way to stop another version of the Legion of Doom, this one including an all-new version of the supervillain Cheetah and the supervillain Brainiac. And finally, another season finale awaits. Superboy Superboy Season 10's finale ends, or in this case, begins with the new and improved Anti-Monitor, sucking the essence of every supervillain in its universe. It now has enough energy to destroy the JLE once and for all. However, the Flash won't let that happen again. With the help of some other superheroes from the multiverse, the JLE managed to defeat the Anti-Monitor. As for the post credit scene in the episode, the JLE walks into the sunset with a newspaper rolling around in the wind. That is my awkward impression of a newspaper rolling around in the wind. It lands front side up on a street and unfolds to reveal a page reading Senator Lex Luthor's presidential campaign begins, meaning Flash then changed time for the better, in a manner of speaking. And that, yet again, wraps up another season of Superboy, the 10th to be exact. Any thoughts? Do you think I should have saved Anti-Monitor for a later episode or season? Do you feel I should have wrapped up Luther's storyline in a prior season? If so, which one specifically? Once again, any similar relatable comments, questions, or concerns can be expressed on my Instagram at denny.pivach. Now, on to the premiere of Superboy Season 11. Though it is somewhat of a filler, it is a topical one. As the JLE slowly begin returning to their normal everyday lives, Jessica and Shiara are facing some backlash. Not because of their power, but because of their representation. Due to their society and also their family standards, the two once again doubt their immaculate love for each other. They are soon confronted by some discriminating frat boys who decide to show how true power can affect the world. After that fiasco, the boys are revealed to have pumped some drugs into themselves that provide somewhat metahuman abilities. That could only mean one thing. Mira Crew is selling on the streets again. The drug now alters the boys' brain functions, and they end up going on a killing spree. Meanwhile, Bruce and Diana are searching for a sorcerer named Eclipso. After that, Brainiac 5 uses its technology to combine with an asteroid and the residue from Eclipso's corpse. This new power magically resurrects Clark's dead parents. Unfortunately, sooner than later, they begin wreaking havoc upon Smallville. Turns out, once the new power was created, Eclipso was too. He has been reborn and controls some lost souls within Smallville. When Clark discovers his parents are alive, he can't seem to bring himself to stop them. As that's happening, the Flash starts wondering why some irrelevant events from his timeline remain intact. The JLE also attend a presidential election to find out who or what may be after Lex Luthor. The cliffhanger ending reveals Eclipso and Lex to be in cahoots with one another. 
However, after getting possessed by Eclipso, Lex abuses his newfound powers in the JLE. There is also a man introduced in the midst of the season named William Willie Talkman. He has created a time-elapsing multiversal Porsche, aka a time machine, or as he calls it, Temp for short. This is a subtle reference to the time-traveling villain Tempest, played by the illustrious Lane Davies in the 1993 series Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, starring Terry Hatcher and Dean Cain as the titular two characters. Though this series would have most certainly surpassed that series' time on the air, meaning this series, as in going over 1997, which is when Lois and Clark initially ended, I still would have preferred both series to stick around. Anyways, Willie uses Tem to take over the world because where he's from, the Justice League aren't exactly heroes. They're dictators. Another reference to another series wherein the evil Justice League are known as the Justice Lords. With the help of another enemy of Superman's, Willie might just do it. Talkman soon makes his dream a reality and becomes a ruler of the new world. Starting his own time-altering business, he decides he wants more. Obsessed with power, he decides to rule the entire multiverse. Eclipso Lex decides to create an army of samuroids, aka comic book-known robotic samurais, to distract the Justice League while he works on his true marvel. However, when the samuroids are defeated, Eclipso Lex decides to experiment his marvel on one hit of his earlier creations. This will be the introduction for the comic book famous supervillain Amazo. Eclipso Lex wishes to use Amazo as protection, like how Tony Stark uses his Iron Man suits in the comics and MCU movies. But when Amazo refuses and retaliates, Eclipso Lex is left weakened and must find a way to regain some power. Meanwhile, Flash and Martian Manhunter try to find the location of the good Montander. AM's counterpart. The Flash confronts Eclipso Lex about the timeline, only to be killed by Lex in front of an army of supervillains. It's like the Thunderdome, but sadder, and the Flash's life gets drained, giving Eclipso Lex unlimited power. The JLE decide to avenge Barry's death by destroying Eclipso Lex, but with Eclipso Lex getting stronger and hope growing weaker, how can they? The cliffhanger ending of this episode shows Warlock John Constantine who I should have mentioned earlier would have been played all along by a young Mark Shepard, coming off just from the few episodes of X-Files he was on. John is able to capture Eclipso and send him through the multiverse. Eclipso literally arrives in the universe of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. More specifically, the time during which the second season took place. The last few episodes would be somewhat underwhelming because they did not technically connect with with this season's entire storyline. However, when they're not when however they are not only Batman centric, but also reveal something pretty unbelievable about the Dark Knight's true ambitions. Since most seasons of Superboy have episodes that are two parters, much like the two thousand one animated series Justice League had similarly done, I'm just going to refer to the next few episode plots as one singular episode, if that's clear enough. So beginning with episode sixteen, the Riddler tries to outsmart the smartest man alive. But it isn't Batman. It's actually the Scarlet Speedster himself, Barry Allen. Barry is trying to deceive the Riddler into solving his own puzzle for him, or the Flash could be destroyed. Once again, 
episode 20 has the Scarecrow creating a toy that'll scare children to death. Can Superman stop him? Meanwhile, comic book note anti-hero Killer Frost must stop a cult that worships a former supervillain named Firefly. Episode 22 shows the return of Matt Ritter, Rodan Fisher, and Firestorm. The three must find a way to stop Victor Freeze, aka Mr. Freeze, from turning Gotham into a literal snow globe. Somewhat continuing after that episode, penguins are revealed to be dying around the world, and the penguin is suing Wayne Enterprises for the cause, the penguin being a not really supervillain, but uh, an antagonist of Batman's. Meanwhile, Polka Dot Man, a technical anti-hero, has created polka dots that can cause any living organism to fall into a deep sleep, which is seemingly what caused the penguins to, too. With all these ridiculous occurrences, you wouldn't think someone could be to blame. Well, Superboy Season 11, the finale introduces the well, for Superboy Season 11, the finale introduces the audience to the one and only Batmite, revealed to be a descendant of the intergalactic mischievous imp, Mr. Mitzik Pitalik. Batmite is obsessed with the Dark Knight. So much so, he rewrote a good chunk of this season. Like an audiobook, Batmite provides as narrator and narrates the finale, but much the tone of a commentary track. The Riddler is revealed to be most of the villains of Gotham City. He's been creating new fictitious identities to manipulate and drive Batman crazy. The JLE must stop him for good before Batman goes ballistic. Now, though the 12th season premiere of Superboy is a flashback episode, it is rather intriguing one if I do say so myself, or in this case, don't. It begins by showing the Riddler, who was originally a fan of Batman and wanted to be a hero too. Instead, Batman saw him as a threat and accidentally pushed him to a vat of chemicals, causing Riddler to experience a range of emotions, insanity, intelligence, and even darkness. This is paying an homage or a parody to the comic book Batman Under the Red Hood, wherein Batman causes the origins of the Joker, inevitably. The cliffhanger ending for that episode reveals Clipso returning to Superboy's universe, named Earth-88, as a reference to the premiere date of Superboy which was October 8th, 1988. We see Eclipso resurrecting the Riddler. However, after seeing him in literal pieces, he believes the Riddler could use some assistance. The two traveled to where Star was being held. The next episode has Superman encountering Byron again. This time, he isn't on the side of evil, at least in the government's opinion. Byron was asked to defeat all supernatural forces, including Superman. Meanwhile, Martian Manhunter reunites with Ronan Fisher. However, after Batmite's quote-unquote reboot of the series, he has slowly become the thinker. Ronan explains to Manhunter that if it doesn't oblige any of his commands, each and every member of the JLE will suffer a most painful death. Thankfully, Jean outsmarts Ronan using telepathy. The next episode shows Mongol and Mongal returning to wreak havoc among the poor defenseless civilians of Capital City. They plan to make Fortnite a reality with people killing each other for a prize, aka their lives. The JLE can't keep track anymore of what's to come or what has already been. They ask Dr. Fate for help to guide them on their journey to a better world. A utopia. Not realizing that they're still trapped within their own minds, the Justice League decide to explore the world, only known as Utopia, a bit more. They encounter descendant of the supervillain Clock King named Tempest F. Ugit. With his immaculate power, the JLE must face now their greatest challenge, humanity itself. Since Eclipso Riddler, 
aka a hybrid of Eclipso and Riddler combined, similar to Eclipso Lex. And Star also have mind-controlled almost everyone on planet Earth. The original founding members of the JLE, which includes Superboy, Green Arrow, Zatanna, The Flash, and Batman, have almost nowhere else to hide. Fortunately, the few that remained free-willed have formed a rebellion. The Legion team up with these freedom fighters to defeat their now ever-greatest threat. Unfortunately, Barry discovers that General Swan has arisen from the dead, and what his true intentions were all along. It's revealed that, for the past few seasons, General Swan was one of the first few humans to get his hands on the Book of Destiny. With little help from the Anti-Monitor, Swan was able to discover not only his future, but others too. He decided to use his knowledge to his advantage and create an irreversible situation. This whole time, Swan knew everything that would happen. He knew of the Anti-Monitor, Flash's time-traveling mistakes, and Eclipso's return. With some help from Eclipso, Riddler, and Starro, Swan becomes what everyone else thought of him, a monster. Only difference now is he's the most powerful monster in the entire multiverse. After days of non-stop fighting, the remaining members of the League are looking pretty beaten. Superman lost an eye, Batman lost an ear, Wonder Woman lost an arm, and Chiara lost Jessica. Just when it seems like the world is about to come to an end, Superman pushes himself up, firmly pressing down on his battle axe, grasping it once more, and gives a rather inspirational speech. Now, I'm not the best impressionist, but I'm going to try to do my best impression of George Newborn playing or acting as Superman from the Justice League 2001 animated series. For years, I dreamt of having a normal life. I hoped I could retire from being a superhero. That's not possible, because being a hero isn't some lousy job or chore. It's a privilege, a privilege bestowed upon me by my ancestors, and yours too. We've all lost something, but if we hadn't, we wouldn't be here, still standing, still fighting the good fight. And that's why we exist, giving others hope when they lose it, giving people a hand, pun intended, Diana, sorry, when they need it the most. Diana then gives a choked up smirk. If Swan wants the war, we'll give him one, one to remember us by first centuries. With that, the League turn around to face their enemies as portals open up behind them, hinting that other superheroes are on their way to help. In an end credit scene, we see the League has prevailed and Utopia has finally become a reality. As we fade into an unusually built prison cell, we only see bars and darkness, but we hear a familiar giggle from a familiarly annoying little imp. And that, my dear friends, officially wraps up the entire fandomized season's Superboy. What do you think about my iteration, at least? Did you think it got kind of overwhelming, overwhelmingly clunky in the end? Did you think it got underwhelmingly upsetting? Send any similar relatable comments, questions, or concerns through my Instagram at denny.pivac. That's D-E-N-I, a literal dot, P-I-V-A-C. No ch, of course. No spaces, no caps, and also no certainly, most certainly no sticker slaps. With that said, we move on to my fandomized plots of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man trilogy. Though this would completely retcon slash reboot slash remake slash whatever the heck one wishes to bloody call it, my Spider-Man 3 begins with Spider-Man swinging to the top 
of an unfinished building where he sees a familiar face leaning just a little over the edge. And I should also mention this, and I'm sorry I did not before, I mentioned that earlier that this episode would be anniversary themed, mainly because Superboy ended nearly 30 years ago, and Spider-Man was created twice as long ago, 1962 and Superboy ending in 1992. So, somewhat anniversary themed, but this is just purely coincidence. Anyways, it's actor Bruce Campbell who Spider-Man discovers. He also played the wrestling match announcer in the first Spider-Man, the snooty usher in the second Spider-Man, and he would have played a waiter in the third had I not completely retconned it. He turns around to give Spider-Man a big smile and applause. He explains how he needed Spider-Man to hear the police sirens so that they could guide him to Bruce. There weren't really any sp- police cars coming for the man. I was going to say spirals, but what the heck are spirals? Spider-Man is confused and asks who the man is. He says he's Quentin Beck, a government agent who worked in the technological division with Peter's parents, which is somewhat pulling some information or some plot points from Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man, which kind of revolved around Peter's parents having a espionage-esque life. When Peter's parents discovered Quentin was creating a weapon that could eventually take over the world, they planned to put an end to it. Unfortunately, Quentin was already one step ahead. Having many connections, Quentin put a hit on Peter's parents, which inevitably led to their untimely demise. Spider-Man, full of rage and confusion, attacks Quentin. However, he realizes Quentin knows who Spider-Man truly is. Peter stops, and Quentin recuperates to explain his demands. He says he will break into the prison where Bonesaw McGraw, a.k.a. Rhino, and Flint Marco, a.k.a. Sandman, are being held. When he does, half of the Sinister sinister Six are finally brought together, the other half await. Quentin brings Doc Ock and Green Goblin back by tampering with some symbiote retrieved and delivered by astronaut John Jonah Jameson III. However, before testing the symbiote on Doc or Goblin, Quentin tests on John. John becomes Agent Venom. The Sinister Six has officially assembled and is ready to destroy Spider-Man. At night, Peter waits at a park for another instruction for further instructions from Quentin, only to be whammied by Rhino, from the side, of course. Spider-Man recognizes who Rhino really is and fights back. Then Flint arrives, looking like his normal self, until he lifts his hands, showing gloves that resemble the comic book villain's shocker. He shoots out and he shoots out sand into Spider-Man's eyes, and then creates a mini sand tornado. Tornado. Sorry for my stuttering or mispronunciation of words. Mini sand tornado. I'm reading this like a anchorman or woman would read a prompter, prompter, whatever they call those uh, little machines that they read the words scrolling down upon. Oh man, now I got sweat in my eye because this sound booth is so congested and so claustrophobic, claustrophobically fueled. Oh man, I'm probably going to die in here, which spins Peter off into a fountain. Regaining his vision ever so slightly, Peter has enough time to dodge Green Goblin's attack, but not Doc Ock's. As Doc tries to drown Peter, Quentin commands him to stop, and Doc does. Peter, thrown off from the overall thrashing, is out of breath and lies down against the marble hard fountain, seeing all his arch nemesises. Nemesises? Nemesises, I don't know. <laughs> I'm terrible with pronunciation. Sometimes, not all the time. Just when Peter thinks he has had enough, Agent Venom slowly slides, hanging upside down and tilts his head to the left. Agent Venom, aka John, is confused what to do now, and Quentin just says to hang still. He takes out an odd-looking gun and fires. 
It sends a high-pitched noise that causes the symbiote to lose its grip on John and fling onto Peter. As John and Peter pass out, the sinister sticks and are at five. Now, I guess, look over the two and give each other an evil grin. Peter awakens to the sound of police sirens and sees John's bloodily mangled corpse hanging by a web line on a traffic light. The police start firing at Peter, which he's thrown off by and swings away. He returns to his apartment only to get maced by MJ. As Peter screams, MJ recognizes it and tries to help Peter. Weirdly. Peter asks why did she why she had done that, and MJ explains to explains that John, her ex-fiance, wore a similar suit. He swung into Peter's apartment and attacked MJ. Peter is so frustrated but then remembers what he saw earlier. Peter theorizes to MJ that his new suit is an organism of its own. Peter then, Peter then starts experiencing, experiencing flashes of other bloodily mangled corpses. One is Rhino, another is Sandman, and the last one is Doc Ock. Peter decides to get some more answers by swinging back to Quentin. Quentin is now at a library reading Jekyll and Hyde. Peter barges in, looking like his normal self, and thrashes Quentin against the bookcase with Peter's venom acting as an arm extension. Hey guys, sorry if my audio once again sounds a little bit different. I switched places due to convenience of uh, recording and for my own well-being, but uh, we'll continue where we left off. So, Quentin explains how he was able to control the symbiote so that it could easily do Quentin's bidding. However, when Doc Ott got back control of his body, he decided against any other biddings. Quentin killed him along with Rhino and Sandman because they demanded money. And if you hear a slight whooshing sound, those are airplanes flying over my apartment building because we're just near an airport. But it's a pretty cool sight to see. Anyways, meanwhile, Green Goblin and or Norman Osborn return to their home to make amends with his son, Harry. However, before Norman has enough time to manipulate his son into joining forces with him to kill Spider-Man, Harry's butler, Bernard, reveals Norman's true self. As Bernard and Harry try to fight off Norman, Peter tries to fight off an army of policemen, one of whom is Quentin. Thankfully, Harry arrives just in time to save Peter using a new glider. Harry and Peter make amends. Quentin jump scares the two, now in his comic book accurate costume, aka the Mysterio suit. He gives a demonstration of the weapon Peter's parents try to stop Quentin from using. It's also called Mysterio, but spelled M-S-T-R-I-O, or as it was shortened, mechanically simulated test-running illusional optics. The weapon is a pair of contact lenses that can create unimaginable illusions. It easily manipulates one's preferred target. Now, the contact lenses are on Peter, and he's tripping out. He's shown flashes of his nemesis' victims and his own, too. As Harry tries to fight Mysterio, he sees Peter about to fall over a building. He's too late, and Peter plums to his death. The symbiote, still attached to Peter, slips away. As the citizens of NYC gather around Peter, they look up to see Quentin. Shocked that his plan didn't go accordingly, he's distracted enough for Harry to deliver one final blow that quil- that kills, I was going to say quills, Quentin for good. A memorial service and or funeral is held for Peter slash Spider-Man. When Harry, MJ, and Aunt May think they're the only ones attending, they look behind and see every New Yorker come, including J. Jonah Jameson. And he explains how Quentin's connections were confessed, confessed to their linkage to Quentin's, I guess, series of misfortunate events. Basically, they confessed and Spider-Man's off the hook, literally. 
and Jameson finally accepts Spider-Man for who he really was, a hero. Now, Spider-Man 4 begins with Harry utilizing his family's fortune, or what was left of it, to try to replicate, replicate the Spider-Man formula. He isn't using any test subjects except himself. However, when a group of orphan teens get word of Harry's mission, they put their names down as test subjects. Harry is skeptical at first, but agrees when he hears that the orphan teenagers have literally nothing to lose. Harry then puts them through tests, and soon after comes up with a successful formula. Unfortunately, the symbiote returns attaching itself to one of the orphan teenagers, who is named Edward Brock Thompson. Turns out, Flash Thompson had a child with Mary Brock. When Mary died from an unspecified illness, Flash became broke figuratively and literally. What he became, he passed on to his son. When child services got word of this, they took Flash's son away. So now, Edward Brock Thompson, or Eddie, has become an all-new Venom. With his newfound powers, Eddie goes after his dad to, quote-unquote, teach him a lesson. However, someone has already been him to it. In a dark alley, Eddie sees his father being sucked dry by a monster with blood-red beady eyes and metallically black wings. Eddie tries to escape, but is unfortunately carried away by the monster. One by one, Harry's test subjects are kidnapped, except for Miles Morales. Harry and Miles work together to try and figure out what exactly is going on. They discover that Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. Kingpin, who's played by Michael Clark Duncan in 2003's Daredevil, has been working with Adrian Toomes to create a weapon that can both take and give life. However, Fisk got cocky and decided to use the weapon, a.k.a. a suit, for himself so that he could live forever. What's even worse is that after Fisk absorbed Harry's test subjects, the suit literally became a part of him. He has officially become a humanized version of the Vulture. Harry and Miles arrive at a church to confront Fisk, but are whammied by him, now looking like the bird he posed as. Though severely injured, Miles is able to see a man and a woman crouching over him. He then frantically wakes up, sweating in a lavish studio apartment. He's greeted by Elektra, who is played by Jennifer Garner in 2003's Daredevil, and Daredevil, who was also played by Ben Affleck in 2003's Daredevil. The two explain to Miles their history with Fisk. With Miles still recuperating, Daredevil and Elektra decide to go after Fisk with two other heroes. Invisible Woman, who was played by Jessica Alba in 2005's Fantastic Four, and Mr. Fantastic, who was also played by Ian Gruffid in 2005's and Fantastic Four also, or two, or whatever. After a while, Miles gets bored from sitting in bed and hears two people arguing. He decides to investigate and discovers a man on fire and a clayish monster arguing over which is the better season of Friends. He finally meets the rest of the Fantastic Four. The Human Torch, who was played by Chris Evans in 2005's Fantastic Four, and Thing, who was also played by Michael Chiklis in 2005's Fantastic Four. If you haven't guessed already, this new Spidey trilogy would have connected a majority of the Marvel projects from the late 90s and early 2000s. Miles also meets their partners, Alyssa Masters, who was played by Kerry Washington in Yagatjist, hopefully by now, and Zena Serenci, who was played by Marina Menunos. The four welcome and try to cheer up Miles. Thing trains him a little. Torch provides an interesting fire show. Alyssa shows off some moves Daredevil taught her. And Xena plays some Bay City, blo uh, Bay City Rollers, a band that I pretty uh, much grew up on. They uh, sung a 
pretty familiar song called Saturday Night. If uh, anyone's a big Umbrella Academy fan, they can uh, hear that song being played then. Just as Miles is starting to let loose, the other four heroes come crashing through four windows each. Everyone comes together to fight Vulture, but Miles has other plans. He swings and kicks Vulture back out. As the two fall, Miles lands some serious punches. They then go rolling down a double-decker bus. Vulture smashes the end hard as Miles uses his newfound powers to try and rescue the civilians inside. Fortunately, he does in time. Unfortunately, he's caught in an explosion. The double-decker double bus is on its fiery side as Vulture rises holding Miles in his talents like a body bag. He throws Miles onto the street who goes sliding as smooth as one, too. Fortunately, the Fantastic Four arrive and combine their powers with Miles to literally crush Vulture. A post credit scene reveals the year is now 2099, and Miles is still alive. His new suit has been keeping him alive for quite some time by absorbing lives, similar to the Vulture's. When it does, his is extended. However, he only takes the life of criminals. Unfortunately, Miles has gone dark and become a vigilante. This means that sometimes he can't really... He can't really... I guess the line between... I, in a sense, for him at least, the line between good and evil is blurred. So he's become somewhat of a darker version of Spider-Man. This, of course, is the introduction for Spider-Man 2099. And that wraps up another episode of Only Murders in the Writer's Room. I'm getting pretty irritated and exhaustive coming up with fandomized plots and whatnot. And since there also hasn't been any complaints, I'm going to do something new next week. Next week slash next episode... We'll be doing a review of all 27 James Bond movies. Yeah, you heard that right, 27. That's including the canon and non-canon ones. Until next time, this has been Only Murders in the Writer's Room with Only Murders in the Writer's Room. I swear I thought I just said womb. Anyways, this has been Only Murders in the Writer's Room with Denny Pivac. And I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. Goodbye.